I think that you know the fact that it was Green Day that was the reason. That's the true reason that I started learning how to play guitar and wanted to play guitar was because when I can't come around, that video came out and Billy Joe was walking down walking the alley, Bart, right? Yeah, yeah. The Bay Area. And at one point, he took the phone off the hook from a payphone, mm-hmm. but then just kept walking. <laughs> and at the time, You're I, like this is punk rock. This is punk. I couldn't imagine anything anything more rebellious than that. So uh, from that moment on, I wanted to be a you know a rock star you're from cambria right mm-hmm. it's actually i've I've, mm-hmm. I've not been but uh, my aunt lives there now in cambria a so lot of like, aunts and uncles is and that an aunt and uncle place it is definitely an aunt and uncle they have young children or had young children so you know it wasn't not quite retirement community yeah it is a very sleepy town yeah on the central coast of california it's by san luis obispo right? yeah that's like the closest anything you know growing up it's like that's about 40 minutes away that's the closest movie theater record store all okay. that kind of stuff 40 minutes yeah that's that seems so isolated for the california coast it's pretty isolated yeah and there's no chains allowed it's very uh very quaint very uh very old school but it's a good it's interesting mix of like half or maybe like a third retired folks Mm -hmm. and a third um hippie surfer folks and then a third random i actually went to school in santa cruz so probably oh, nice. not too super dissimilar from there yeah yeah it's kind of like a smaller version of that was there anything in the way of a music scene happening at the time in cambria <laughs> i wouldn't call it a scene sure i was in bands uh, growing up you know ziola was one of them samsara which was very related to nirvana terrible terrible names um but san luis obispo had a little scene emphasized the word little but there were you know when i started uh, when i got my driver's license in high school i'd start driving to san luis every day going to see these local shows at cafes and stuff Mm -hmm. and i felt like totally out of my element i felt like um everyone was just staring at me like who's this yokel from cambria these big city san luis obispo kids there's like forty thousand people there and there's no way anyone had any idea where where you were from i mean like all no. kids from that area yeah. looked the same yeah basically, exactly right? but i felt like i was a fish out of water i yeah. was so i was so nervous and so scared to be around these like people who are a couple years older yeah. you know going to cal poly or something and they're dressed so cool and they wore like pin back t-shirts and like i don't know it was just it, it was all a little overwhelming for me even more so than the the whole 40 minutes away thing obviously like the difference between being a high school kid and a college kid is that's a huge. massive yeah. gulf of culture right it's huge it's huge and i think if you if you go to a high school that was like a couple thousand people or yeah. whatever there's enough people that you can find that have similar like-minded whatever but in cambria we had two towns combined and our graduating class had 60 people mm. so it's like there's nobody you know there's nobody i'm from the east bay originally mm-hmm. and for me it was like yeah we'd go to like berkeley san francisco yeah. for you it was san luis obispo oh, obispo, yeah or L- i mean L- LA's in a while super far, right? four hours, oh, it's four so, hours. So, yeah and san okay. francisco's four hours wow. so they're both about so they're equally equal distant it. so yeah but in high school my girlfriend at the time and i we were obsessed with bjork and radiohead huh. and so we would drive up to san francisco and okay. down to la for them this is an interesting choice it, given the opportunity so equal distance from yeah. san francisco to los yeah. angeles where do you end up gravitating toward i mean Initially, we started going to LA more just because I had uh, my grandparents live okay. there, and we could crash it there yeah. on their couch. But um, 
throughout growing up in Cambria, L.A., similar to a lot of places, has um, that thing about L.A. has like a bad rap, you know. Yeah. You never want to go to L.A. L.A. is terrible. Everyone's fake. As someone from Northern California, I can Yeah, the rivalry's there. It's like there's an animosity towards L.A. It's more passive than the New York, Boston thing, but it's maybe passive aggressive is a better way to put it. And L.A., I live in L.A. now, and I love living there. But L.A., I mean, people in L.A. love the Bay Area. Nothing but yeah. kind things. But it, when you're in the Bay Area looking down, it's like, oh, fuck that place. You know, it's but you, I mean, you, you get it, right? I mean, you understand yeah, why, totally. why the stereotypes and, and there's a certain there's a certain amount of accuracy to, towards some yeah. of those. But it, obviously it depends on where you go. And it does seem to have gotten different. It is different now. And especially now the Bay Area is changing too. Oh, God. Yeah, that's yeah. a fair point. It's like. It makes me sad every time yeah. I go back to San Francisco. It's insane how much has changed. Even since I went to school at Berkeley and I lived in the Bay for many years. Um and yeah, more, most recently living in San Francisco and it's unlivable um, yeah. financially. And also just the the bro culture there of um, the tech industry coming mm-hmm. up into the city is, is pretty toxic. And you can kind of, it's pervasive, I would say. I mean, there's still I mean, obviously incredible people and it's the most beautiful city in the world, yeah. I think. Um, but it is something tough about it. It took me going back a lot for that to really sink in mm-hmm. because again, you know, when when you grow up somewhere and you have this idealized version of a city, which is yeah. always San Francisco to me, and driving over the, you know, the Bay Bridge mm-hmm. was sort of a magical experience. And now because of what I do, I have to go back a couple of times a year and the hotel that we stay at a lot of times is right by the Tenderloin and it's just like you have Twitter right here, and then three blocks over, it's people like literally defecating yeah. in the streets. No, the, the income inequality in San Francisco is just staggering. Yeah. It's just becoming that gap's even bigger and bigger as the years go by. It's it's a really weird. In some ways, I like living there because you're kind of confronted with the reality yeah. of the a situation every day. There's no hiding from it. But um, it is it is also very uh, challenging just to be around those two worlds. What brought you to L.A.? A lot of things. Uh, music, for one. Yeah. There was, you know, a lot of my friends and uh, bands that I was playing with and friends with were moving out of, out of the Bay because um, they couldn't afford it. It's the same sort of migrations have been happening in New York. You know, every, like about half the people I know have moved to L.A. in yeah. the last four or five years. Yeah. And it's, I mean, L.A. is getting expensive, too, but it's still way, way cheaper than the Bay. Um, and also, I just want to change, you know, I... Um, I've lived I'd lived in the Bay so many years, and I'm a Dodgers fan. That was another poll. I I, I kind of hated being a Dodgers fan in San Francisco. I had to, to I had to hide my allegiance. Again, and, it's like uh, being a Red Sox fan. <laughs> yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> there was I found one bar in San Francisco that was like a it was a Red Sox bar. Okay, so it was like neutral. Come in. Yeah, we will welcome you. We <laughs> understand like your American play. League. Yeah, you know nothing to do with the Giants. So I would go to watch games there. Listen, I'm an A's fan, so like nowhere yeah. is good for me. No, <laughs> and obviously like you're not just starting. Yeah, and you've, you've been in a, a bunch of bands that have mm-hmm. received a, a certain amount of notoriety. But now that you're kind of like going off on your own as a solo artist, is L.A. a good place to get that kind of footing? I mean, for me, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of that is just the community there. You know, um, I live in this neighborhood called Highland Park mm-hmm. on the northeast side. That's really, really nice, really spread out residentially. And then there's just two like main roads with all the uh, venues and bars and cafes and stuff. And just living in that neighborhood, I've met so many people. You know, I was able to do a residency. I just did a residency in L.A. for three weeks before we started this tour. And I was looking at the lineups and they're all friends. It was like, 
Kira, Jim James, Dawes, Fruit Bats, um, all all these folks that are like my best friends now. And I didn't know any of them really before. And it's just because just living there and going to bars and meeting people. And everyone is really contrary to how it might seem from the outside. Like everyone is so supportive of each other. Everyone's going to each other's residencies, getting even like buying tickets to each other's shows, like um, connecting, jamming together, like helping each other out with gear and this. And it's really I've never been involved in a more inclusive and welcoming Community, music community as as um, that northeast LA. I had Wooden Wand on the show mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, and and he was telling me, and I've heard this from a lot of people that it's getting harder and harder to get people out to the shows, and mm-hmm. you know couldn't put his finger on maybe some combination of a couple of things. One of them is just sort of people being of a certain age and getting yeah. older, and yeah, you know, yeah. like having kids. You know, your contemporaries getting harder for them to get on on weeknights, but also just that maybe people just aren't going to as many shows as they were before. Mm-hmm. Are you noticing any sort of difference with regards to the it's live kinda, setting kind of tough to say because like right now we're on the middle of a two-month tour yeah. with first aid kit we're supporting first aid kit i mean all those shows are sold out from okay. before the tour but they're a, a huge band yeah from sweden that hasn't toured in this in the states in like three or four years so we haven't yet stepped out to do our own headline tour mm-hmm. the stuff that we've done in la has been good but again that's because we know so many people in its community and the you know the residency shows were all sold out so i think that it's still possible and there's still a lot of people coming to shows um but yeah i I just don't know once we step out to do our own headline tour i guess then that we'll have a better idea the residency thing is an interesting one Mm -hmm. too are you playing to similar people night in night out are people coming out to all the shows how does that some are yeah I, i the residency thing is really cool um and it's it's only on Mondays, and, yeah. and all the venues basically in LA do it. And every you know they pick an artist for a month, and then the the artist puts together their own bill for each week, and it's different. And we have those here every once in a while, but it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be nearly as prevalent in yeah. New York as it is and in LA. They start trying to do it in San Francisco, yeah. I know, and a few other places. But I think it just works in LA because there's so many venues and there's so many bands and mm-hmm. there's so many people. It's become this tradition, and mostly they're free as well. We did ours for charity for five bucks yeah and that um i think is is kind of a cool way to do it that makes it probably a little easier to get people out when you're not charging or charging yeah five bucks and it's yeah that's charity. the other thing that's so cool and all, also like the set times are always announced so people are coming in and out you know they know exactly what when yeah. the band is playing they want to see and so it's common on monday to go to like three or four different clubs to see bands you want to see and it's just yeah it's it's an awesome way to find new music and to find new people uh, we found at our residency there were some people that were there all, every week but mostly it was kind of different does that change the math a little bit with regards to you know what a, what a set looks like with regards to um, going out there and kind of like experimenting, th- mixing things up when you know you're going to be doing it every night when you know that you're not charging people twenty bucks to yeah. go there? It does afford you a little more freedom yeah. in terms of what to do, and so yeah, for ours, I, I just wanted to make it really collaborative, so we would have each of the like supporting surprise guests come out during our set and like we would have like so like taylor from dawes and jim and eric from fruit bats would come out and like play cinnamon girl with us so there's sort of an understanding that when you come out to one of these things that the odds are pretty good that there's going to be a, a surprise yeah. guest star there yeah that's kind of that's kind of a newer thing yeah um and we maybe would a announce... neil young song will get played yeah, at some point yeah yeah, exactly. We would announce our like opener openers, quote unquote, that are like way ten times, yeah, hundred times more famous than me. Like the day, the morning of the show, yeah, um, and that kind of created this like kind of cool excitement and stuff. So you're saying we? I mean, are are you approaching the project as a full band? 
I mean, no, I just say we because I feel so weird because I do have a band. Yeah. You know, it's not just me up there. I have, for the residency, it was a four piece. On this tour, it's a three piece. So, same people, similar yeah, people. Yeah. And so it's just like, I can't, it's me. I, can't, I don't know. I've never had anything that's just my name. So yeah. I'm still getting used to like having my name on t shirts and stuff. It just feels a little weird. Like, here, here's, buy this t shirt for me that says my name on it. It just feels a little strange. But um, I always say we just because, you know, the realities of playing shows and being on tour, it's a team, it's a group effort. But, um, I, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's still my stuff. It's, it's a solo project. At what point was it clear that this was going to be under your name? I think when I started writing the songs, you know. Um, you weren't looking to form another group in the same way they really. had in the past? I, I, I had been in bands, you know, Port O'Brien and Waters kind of also started as solo things mm. and then became bands. And I just knew that with this thing... And going forward, you know, through the, for the rest of however long I'm fortunate enough to make records, I wanted to protect the like kind of sole proprietorship of the mm. of the um, project. And really, the only way to do that, if you name it anything other than your name, just knowing my track record, it becomes a band. Yeah. Partly because of what we were just talking about. But for this one, the songs felt way more personal. I demoed out everything. I produced the record. I, you know, single-handedly picked who would play on it. I paid for it all myself. There wasn't any label or anything up front. It was very much from the very beginning um, a solo trip. And um, way more than anything else I had done before. So it just made sense. There's a sense that I get, and I think a lot of people aren't willing to ad- admit this because it makes them sound bad. But but uh, I've spoken to a lot of artists and, and they have essentially said this, that, you know, in order to really have a successful musical project, even a band, it kind of needs to be run like a dictatorship. Yeah. yeah and that's just unfortunately kind of true. And it makes you sound like a real asshole, but no. it's like, I mean, anyone who's ever worked closely with someone else for an extended period of time knows that someone kind of needs to be running the show or someone needs the to ship. be the asshole yeah honestly and i mean i think i've gotten a lot better at that as years have gone You're, on you've gotten better at being an asshole yeah i mean congratulations <laughs> i guess what i mean is like i've gotten better at being a friendly asshole i think maybe in the past there were times where i was just an asshole because yeah. I didn't know how to... There's just so much responsibility to to be the leader of the band, especially when you're on a support tour or something, when you don't have a tour manager or a front of house or anything. There's so much that goes on, and you have to be responsible for every single step of the way and also manage morale and the inner band dr- conflicts and everything. And somehow... I mean, that's a lot, especially for like being 22 yeah. and having you know, no idea what you're doing. But now I think I'm, I'm a lot better at it. And I also have just unfortunate to have a great band band now as i think as i've gotten older my bandmates have also gotten older and everyone's just smarter and better at life so it's just you know part of the deal do people approach it differently because it's under your name i mean are there uh, for the band members or the, at least the people who are backing you is it different for them on just knowing going into it that this is really your project maybe a little but i think like even for waters that's how it started for my band you know i would pay salaries and it kind of stayed separate that way at first and i so so i think at first it kind of felt exactly the same it might be a slightly more like when something good happens you know or whatever that my band members now say to me like congratulations or something but i'm like but it's you too kind of like before i would just be like congratulations to you it's us you know but just the fact it's my name it makes it a little more yeah divided i guess do they end up having input when it comes to writing and recording songs uh it's separate um so that my live band wasn't on the record okay um and that's by design 
Well, the I mean, I didn't even know the, my current band uh, yeah. when I made the record. So, but I think it is kind of nice to keep those two worlds separate. The studio is such a um, kind of intense experience all in itself, and I have um, you know Griff from the band Dawes played on my mm. record, and he, you know, I could never tour with him because uh, he's busy as hell and everything. Um, but I, I think I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, there's something about his playing that I would want on the records. Yeah. And Brian, the drummer that I have live, he is an incredible drummer and I love playing with him live. So I wouldn't want him to, uh, to not be around for that. So it's kind of like they're both roles are different. And I, I do think there's some value in kind of keeping it separate in a way. Going forward when it comes time to, to tour the next time around, does it make sense to try to switch it up as much as possible? It could. It just depends on the songs yeah. and how people... I mean, the reality of the touring situation, there's not a lot of money to go around. Mm. Um, and so it's also just... You're some, kind of up to the whim of other yeah, people's schedules, Yeah, it's also right? just like, how do you feel about doing this, yeah. you know? And, you can't be like, don't tour with the fruit bats. We've got a show yeah, to do. Yeah, it's like, it's like if, you know, you're trying to balance very little money, the scheduling that's like, t- you know, can take over somebody's year, and also like all getting along i mean it's a very delicate balance when there's so little money involved when when there's like when you're headlining and you're on a bus and whatever then it's like no problem you know people are stoked on their salaries and everything and it's comfortable and nice when you're traveling around the country in a dirty 15 passenger van and it's freezing out and everyone's making pennies that it's it's more it's more tenuous does the pressure change when it's just your name when it's your name on the album little yeah yeah i've been feeling a little more sensitive i'd say I mean, I'm a sensitive man. I'm a you know an sure. artist, but also but... like also like you could break up a band, but you can't really. I mean, you could change your name, but yeah. But even like reviews and stuff, you know, even reviews, yeah. I get so it feels so much more personal. Uh, I can't hide behind uh, a name anymore. Yeah. It's it feels. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's it's kind of tough to be honest. Did the work feel more personal going into it? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I'd never I'd never made a record this close to as personal as this. Yeah. I mean, it's I was going through a lot of stuff at the time, and uh, these songs were are a direct result of that and nobody else's experience. This is you know a very deeply personal song. So I think be- that kind of informed everything else from the album artwork to the videos. Every step of the way, it's I've been you know totally um involved in everything and before i would kind of delegate things and spread the wealth but um but now i i kind of i i need to be way more closely aligned with every aspect how organic is that decision to decide to do something more personal i mean you know there's in in every piece of art obviously there's a certain degree of metaphor you can use you know you can you can tell stories through other people obviously there's going to be a bit of you in it but is it a conscious decision to sort of wipe all of that way and make it as personal as possible it wasn't so much a conscious decision as it just was the songs doing the doing the deciding you know like i was touring with waters while i was writing this and planning this record and there was just such a contrast between those songs that we were playing on stage which which i love but they were like very these like big pop rock Mm -hmm. songs with like with lyrics that are you know appealing to a big audience yeah. kind of being way more metaphoric in terms of like the human experience whereas this is like i'm stoned in my room feeling terrible about my life just going through a heavy breakup not knowing what i'm to do and this is what's coming out of me were you dealing with depression at the time 
There was definitely, I, I'm always very uh, hesitant to use that word. It's important to draw a distinction, yeah. but you know, it's, it's something that I've dealt with a little bit too, but I've dealt with it from the standpoint of like, yeah, there are these external forces mm-hmm. and I had a similar situation. I think sometimes just everything hits at once in yeah. life. I also think things are sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. Mm-hmm. So you get down on one thing and then it's just sort of like dominoes. Everything else kind of yeah. falls apart at the same time. But I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with using the word depression as long as you draw the distinction between people who are like medically depressed mm. and just sort of going through a bout of depression. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I, I've never felt like I've suffered from clinical depression, yeah. but um, I definitely was low enough feeling hopeless enough that that word would feel pretty accurate. It was basically two things. I was, well, a few things, but the main kind of headlines were uh, the classic, just terrible, terrible breakup. Mm. Um, six years of a relationship where I, when I felt like it was absolutely going to be a forever kind of thing. Yeah. The rug just got pulled out from under you. Yeah. And while I was on the middle of tour and it was, I mean, it was brutal. I thought, I really had thought up until that point, I'd gone through breakups. I'd thought yeah. that I had kind of experienced what they sing about in those old country songs, but um, that's not, not even, not even close. Especially because you were like in a van yeah. at the time. I mean, did you? Around for other people did you, do, did you do a good job not manifesting it or were you just like broken? I, had, I mean i had to be open obviously and i'm a, a yeah. very open person and i you know they all know knew my situation yeah. but i took a few nights where i, I splurged got my own hotel room and just like cried and called my friends and you know dealt with it that way kind of um and then also on top of that i had always been thinking about my career and I've never been able to get to a point where it feels like uh, this is something that for sure it's going to take me to the golden age of retirement. I'm an optimist, but also a realist when it comes yeah. to like be surviving as a musician. Yeah. It's hard. And the waters, but the band was kind of on a, you know, on a path. It was like, it felt like we had some going and then it kind of started going down. And my dad, you know, is a commercial salmon fisherman in Alaska. And I was always under the impression that if music, didn't work i was gonna buy the boat and take over that is a hell of a backup career yeah it is and i it's the only other thing that i'd ever imagined myself doing i've been happy with and i love you know i've worked on his boat several years and i and i and i and i know it and i love it and i think i would be good at it my fishing experience is yeah. like most people's fishing experience like you know like a a reel on a on a boat as somebody who's never done it what is this is gonna sound very condescending apologize <laughs> what's what's enjoyable about it um there's a lot more that's not enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it sounds miserable. Yeah, I mean, especially commercial fishing. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, we'd be out at sea for oh, like seven or eight weeks at a time without touching land. No shower on board. No toilet on board. Um, you're around. You're just going over the side. We have a bucket, five gallon bucket that's attached to a rope, and you like dip it in the ocean to get a little water and you take it in this small head and it's splashing in the waves and it's terrible yep those things are terrible and the, the sleep there's no sleep you're just like little taking the little naps and so all of my favorite things yeah <laughs> yeah sleeping <laughs> yeah, man. Like it's, it's all out there. you don't want to do it no you don't want to do it but for me it it uh it's such a huge part of my life i mean i've been going up to kodiak island since i was born yeah. for four months up a year. Alaska. Yeah. yeah and uh for me my dad and i just worked really well together and commercial fishing on kodiak is so there's so much strategy involved and you have to know exactly where the fish are going 
by and what time of year and the tides and the winds. And, you know, my dad has a notebook, handwritten notebook that dates back to 1969, full of tips and things. And it's this, you become, it's a very primal existence. And that, and being completely shut off from any cell phones or internet, there's nothing like that at all for up to two months at a time. After the initial kind of shock and awe, terribleness uh, wears off, it, it you you know become enveloped in this world that um, it's hard to leave. How many people are on a boat? Four. So you're sort of like you're taking touring mm-hmm. as a musician. Mm-hmm. And you're like, let's extend this, not quite prison, but let's extend this to some sort of logical end. Yeah. And it's that. It's extreme. It's extremist touring. And I anticipate that like the majority of the the squabbles and everything else that you would have with your tour mates Mm -hmm. are probably amplified when you literally can't leave. Yeah. I think the fact that you can't leave the boat actually has a has an effect of squashing a lot huh. of uh, stuff because you just everybody knows they can't do it yeah so you just go to your bunk which you don't there's no privacy you just have a little sheet i'm gonna butcher this and, yeah. and steal somebody else's joke but there's a there, there's a good joke about not being able to have a fight in the tent because you can't slam the door yeah that's basically how it feels i mean i've gotten in arguments i've i've actually thrown a salmon at somebody <laughs> because he was pissing me off and that's the only thing i could think to do that's a real that's up in the ante picked up a salmon that was still alive and threw it but this is a thing that you miss when you're not doing i do it's insane but i really do and this last summer that that was the other part that was so hard for me my my um my dad this last summer was his last summer he's retiring after 50 years i'm sure the human body can only take so much oh yeah and he's incredible in incredible shape he's a surfer every day and he could you know physically he could keep doing it but he's done and i'm so happy for him and he's stoked but uh, for me it's there for that a career to happen there needs to be a clean transition because it's so expensive to own a boat um, and to maintain the boat and the permit and the net and everything it's like a you know eight hundred thousand dollar buy-in to the industry and i obviously can't afford that so yeah. it's like if it was going to be a smooth transition it could be something that happened but it just didn't work out timing wise because i'm not ready to do it i'm still you know music is my main thing and i, I can't stop doing this to do that I'll you know regret it forever. Could you reasonably foresee a future in which you just didn't make music anymore? Not really. I mean, I could foresee a future where I I don't find it either a fulfilling yeah. enough or b financially viable. Sure. You know, I I want to. I I'm not you know a materialist really. I don't need much at all, but I do want to have a family and live in California. So for that, those two factors, you got to have a, some pretty staple uh, income or you got to marry rich. So that's still an option. <laughs> How hard was it to be as confessional as you were on this record? I have to imagine there were things that just couldn't, that just didn't make it in. Was it yeah. too personal? No, I mean, of course, the most personal details you can kind of cover up and use yeah. um, allegorically. So you feel like it's all in there? Yeah, more or less. I yeah. think the vast arc of, uh, of misery is, is yeah. in there. <laughs> There you go. That was a fun talk with Van William that we recorded earlier this year. His new album, Countries, is out now. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can like us on Facebook, rate or review us on iTunes, or if you get your podcasts, follow us on Tumblr. That's riylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. That's about it for this week, so stick around because we'll be back in a few days with another episode of RIYL. Thank you.